coverage of Better Call Saul continues with episode four, Sabrosito. And this is an interesting episode. Again, we're getting a little closer to the Breaking Bad themes. It's it's always had that Breaking Bad feel to it because it's the same people making it and all these techniques they do are very familiar. But now we're getting a lot more of these characters and plots deeper dives into them that were such a major part of Breaking Bad. And that's cool. That's a lot of fun. We get to see a lot of these little characters again. That's great. Before we get started, a quick shout out to announcer Jason for help with the voiceover work and Thomas Numpersong for the intro music. If you're curious about the outro music, that's from a band I was in from about 15 years ago. The band is called Cockman Oppressor or Kindergarten Chaos Plot. We just changed our name every week. And also, if you could, take a moment to give us a rating on iTunes. It really helps the show get noticed. If you're enjoying our coverage, tell us what you think. We've changed up a few things here. When we started this show, we tried to cover a lot of shows at once, and it was a little too much. A little, We bit off maybe a little too much more than we can chew, and I think it's funny that we're slowing things down with this show, which is a show that really slows things down. So that, <laughs> I think that's really fitting, and I hope you all are enjoying it. So let's uh, let's get into it. Meta elements. Like Aziz was saying, this is closer and closer to Breaking Bad. I mean, half of this episode was just dedicated to cartel stuff. The first 26 minutes, we didn't even see Jimmy himself. So the title of this episode, Sabrosito, by the way, I wish it could have been Bingo, but apparently they already <laughs> had an episode titled Bingo. But Sabrosito means tasty, and the bobblehead there was Sabrosito. Nice. So Jimmy, speaking of the bingo, Jimmy and Kim's situation and Gus's situation where he's forced to ship Hector Salamanca's product, which he seems to want to do. He seems to have tricked Hector into forcing him to doing exactly what he wants, which is also what Jimmy and Kim have set up. They are totally aware of the tape being played and they're acting like they don't want it to be played, but it fits into their plan, which is a little less clear. We'll get into it. Gus's plan is perhaps a little more transparent, which is funny because he's this big secretive cartel guy. <laughs> but we'll start with him because the episode starts with him. Yeah, both these sets of characters are, oh no, don't throw me in a briar patch, you know? And <laughs> <laughs> like, I like briar patches. Seems like the are gonna get what they want narrative we start with this flashback set in 1999 and though gus frang himself isn't in it it obviously revolves around him he is the presence that is affecting all of these people right here we start with don Eladio himself and it's really interesting and cool because when we last saw don Eladio in breaking bad he was exiting the show by falling into the pool in the very same pool and the director of the episode made a point to have the first shot of Don Eladio be him diving in the pool, which I thought was perfect, but it also mirrored the teddy bear scene, right? That's definitely what I thought of first. Wow, this is just like all the pool shots from Breaking Bad with the teddy bear floating. But then I realized it's also a bookend to Don Eladio's life. And I caught a completely different thing than either of you two. We all noticed something different about this scene that was all of which I think were valid observations that I think the creators had in mind. I thought Hector was about to pee in the pool because the first <laughs> time we ever see Don Eladio 
Palladio, the first thing that happens is Gus and his friend, the chemist who gets killed by Hector, are sitting there waiting for Don Palladio to come out. And Hector comes out first. Of course, this is way back in Breaking Bad, I think season four. Maybe season five, but it doesn't matter. And Hector just pees in the pool. And it's like, <laughs> well, that's random. Hector's one of Don Palladio's lieutenants and he just does that. And, bef- and it's, it's really odd. And I thought maybe this is the moment at which Hector starts to... You thought he had a thing for peeing in pools right there. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I think... was like, oh, he just likes peeing in pools. Yeah, I think that's the moment where he's like, man, I wish I could get back at him right now. Maybe he does just after the scene cuts off. Because remember, everyone else leaves for the birthday celebration. Yeah, you even... coming? Egg. He even sends his own yeah. Jimenez, the driver, off. He's yeah. like, what are you looking at? Makes him leave, and he's only standing there by himself. Yeah, I so. think that's a miss, Aziz. I think if you had been in a writer's room, they would have had him pee in the pool. <laughs> I don't think he's powerful enough to pee in the pool right then. No, I really don't. <laughs> he's already a Don. I don't know. <laughs> Dons can pee where they want. <laughs> we also had this necklace that's featured the winking Greek. This is in Breaking Bad, too. Eladio's wearing it back then, in the future. I don't know what to say there. <laughs> back to the future. Yes. And then Gus, of course, taunts Hector with it, waving it in front of his face when he's, you know, paralyzed. And it's the name of the ice cream store of Hector's that we see this cut to and... The Winking Greek. We also see Juan Balsa, who was the one that killed Danny Trejo's character, Tortuga, put his head on top of a tortoise. Later... He's set up by Gus. When Gus gives permission to the two, like, killer brothers, he gives them permission to go after Hank, who is a DEA agent. That is a big deal. I mean, you're not supposed to go after DEA agents. That's how cartels get the government's firepower drawn right at them, which is exactly what happens. Once those brothers are caught and captured and slash killed, it's found out who they work for, and the DEA goes right after Balsa, and Balsa's out, and then all of a sudden, Gus is the sole controller of this territory, which is... Also exactly why he's happy to have Hector's drugs in his trucks, because it's setting himself up to be the boss eventually. So in this flashback, we've got Hector, Juan Bolsa, and Don Eladio, all from Breaking Bad. But we've also got a cool connection within Better Call Saul, because this is a flashback to before Better Call Saul. The driver who's killed along with an innocent after Mike robs the Salamanca truck. That's the driver that we meet right here that is their new driver. Oops. The same one that Don Eladio says, you wouldn't think of running off with our stuff, would you? That guy. Right? Yes, yeah. that guy. And so, yeah, he was eventually just betrayed by Hector. He just killed him because he was inconvenient to him, I guess. Yeah, that's Hector for you. We see the roots of this rift with Hector, which were kind of self-explanatory before. It makes sense why these two people would be competing with each other. But we see some very personal things that are rubbing Hector the wrong way. For instance, the Los Poyos Hermanos t-shirt, that's what Don Eladio walks off with. He walks off wearing it, not with the Sabrosito bobblehead. <laughs> T-shirts way more practical though. So. <laughs> and those huge piles of cash that weren't piles. They were so nicely organized in plastic and so perfect. And he's yeah. like, ooh, I insist everything has to be like this from now on. No more rubber bands. <laughs> and then he taunts Hector. And then he's like, oh, don't be so serious, Hector. You know, and it's, of course, that's just even more insulting. Hector is pretty insulting himself. He calls Los Poyos Hermanos the Butt Brothers. And that made me think of something that I'd thought about a lot during Breaking Bad was that I'd always wanted wondered about Gus and his chemist, Max, about their relationship. They seemed really, really close to me. Gus had this personal vendetta after he was killed. He funded him going to college. I just thought that it was very possible that they had a romantic relationship. It makes a lot of sense in retrospect. It fits a lot of those details that it does certainly explain why he took it so personally and so bitterly. And he doesn't have a wife. He doesn't seem to have any sort of relationship elsewhere. So it definitely works. Yeah, he said that he has 
ties with family and kids and things like that, but we've never seen it. And in fact, Vince Gilligan remarked, and I found this on the wiki when I was trying to see a little bit more about Max's backstory. I'd never heard this quote, but Vince Gilligan has said that he didn't want to confirm or deny their relationship, but that if you were to infer that, you wouldn't be wrong, which basically confirms it. But Yeah, <laughs> there's no proof of it, but there's no proof against it. And this does seem to be another hint at it. So Yeah, so Hector comes into Los Pios Hermanos and acts like the big bully he is. And I think this is an interesting scene because it does something that Better Call Saul and Breaking Bad do really well, which is showing these parallels, these extreme opposites. Hector's leadership style versus Gus's leadership style. They're very much polar opposites. Hector is like a gangster. He walks around like a gangster. He acts like a gangster. He's like, he's the you can't prove I did it type of guy. Like, I, you know I'm a gangster. I know I'm a gangster, but I can still skirt because my minions do all these things for me. You can't pin anything on me. And so we see that in Breaking Bad when things go, when, when some things happen, they know that Hector Salamanca is high on the list of people that might be involved or probably is involved. But Gus Fring, not on their radar at all. Mm -hmm. He's super nice. He's part of the community. He really takes care of his employees. His employees really loyal to them. They really had concern for him as well as that it's like all these other things. And I think that's really neat. Not just in a big picture sense or in his relationship to the authorities or whatever, but also on a personal level, how he treated his driver. What are you looking at? Don't speak till spoken to. Whereas Gus is like... What do you guys think? I appreciate your support. You know, he was like kind and friendly to the people under him rather than mean and short with the people under him. He offered, you know, counseling and yeah. like overtime Paid and time all these off. things. Yeah. yeah, it's just a totally different. He's really friendly, but also very much in charge. He's very firm. He looks people in the eye. On the subject of two different perspectives on how to handle something, we see like a tiny microcosm of that in Hector's underlings. We have Nacho and we have Arturo. And Arturo doesn't want to let the woman and child through and this is just like a quick moment of a look between them and Nacho shakes his head and he looks a little aghast at the idea that he won't let a woman and child get through and lets them through and Nacho I mean, he's one of the main cast members, even though we've hardly seen him. So you have to think that he's gonna play a larger part coming forward. And so I really hope we see more of Michael Mando. That feeds in a little bit too to how we saw Gus and Mike interacting. They're not part of the game, right? Leave them alone. They're not part of the game. Hector doesn't seem to care if someone's part of the game. He just took all these, you know, innocent, quote unquote, employees of this restaurant hostage, basically. And I can see how this is another part of Hector playing into Gus's hands. It's going to make other people not want to deal with Hector, not like how Hector's doing things. He's involving people who aren't part of the game. Nacho's not going to like it. Mike's not going to like it. So on and so on. You can see another way this plays out too with Hector almost flaunting his criminal nature, whereas Gus is keeping himself from being suspect in any way. He's meeting with the fire department, you know, he's... Uh, While Hector smokes inside a restaurant. Exactly, yeah, it was a, a very good parallel and uh, a neat uh, reminder of his relationship that is still there in Breaking Bad. It's part of his act, part of fitting in the community and being as unthreatening as possible. He even has a freaking hatchback station wagon. I mean, the guy <laughs> yeah. is just like really trying to fit in the community. There are a couple little references there. One is that he goes to the same fire station that Walt drops Holly off at in Breaking Bad. Huh. And then he makes maybe an inadvertent line here, but it definitely made me think of how he, you know... Met his end. And that he says he hopes to never need them, never need fire services someday. Well, they wouldn't have done much good. <laughs> I hope I never need fire services in a fire explosion. <laughs> <laughs> Can you put him back together again? <laughs> <laughs> 
Fandomedia.reviews. Something that I was thinking about when Gus tells this somewhat ridiculous-seeming, dramatic story to his employees about how he fought them off and said no, <laughs> was that actually his story isn't that far off from the reality. He did have to work with the cartel in order to sell not tacos, but drugs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the part that was that he was lying about is that, that he stood up to them and this is America where the righteous don't have to fear. <laughs> and it's really cool how the demeanor of his employees, they're kind of like a little wary. They're not quite sure what happened, but he really just motivates them and restores their morale. And by the end, their faces are like, their chins are they're held applauding high. applauding him. And yeah. They're, yeah, they applaud. The, <laughs> the assistant manager in particular like took the lead there, as he should. He's the assistant manager. Yeah. And kind of like spoke for the group and like they were concerned about Gus, but they were also concerned about themselves. It was really kind of a cool back and forth there where everyone was looking out for each other. Well performed too. You could see in the actor's face it kind of featured Lyle is that the assistant manager's name, his shift in facial expressions as the story is coming out of Gus. It was really good. Mike here of course has his own interactions with Gus that are on the opposite side. <laughs> He's <laughs> talking as we said talking to people who are not civilians and Gus has a very interesting observation during this interaction. This of course starts first with Mike refusing the money. Victor's and like what? Yeah, what Victor totally, totally doesn't. He's like, wait, what? No. <laughs> and Gus suggests you may be trying to correct something that can't be corrected. And Mike is kind of like, yeah, well, I'm just glad to have Hector out of my head. And I don't think Gus wants Mike to have Hector out of his head. I think mm -hmm. the fact that he hates Hector is something that Gus wants to leverage. And I think that's why he stops and turns back around and says, do you want to know why I said that, you know, Hector needs to live? And he said, well, it's not in your interest right now. Yeah, I think that it does show that he wants Mike to, I don't know, empathize with him in some way, relate to him, because Mike said just before that that could be, depend on the work. He didn't say, no, I won't work with you. That wasn't a, yeah. oh, I really want him to work with me, last case plea. That was a, this will really get him on my side. Yeah, be like, more opportunity to go after, go after Hector is what I'm offering. And he's like, yeah. And Gus gets so intense when he says, a bull to the head would have been too humane. And I think Mike, that really left him thinking. He started to realize, hey, he hates him too. This is not just about business. And that might be a selling point. Made me think of the whole rabid dog thing from Breaking Bad. Oh, nice one. Of course, Mike's deepest concern is his family. We see, we get a scene with, where he's with his family and he's unsettled. He is not quite right. He's worried. He's afraid for them, maybe. He's, he's maybe worried that he's roped them into danger, despite his great efforts to do exactly the opposite. It seemed to me like maybe he had some sort of work to do, some investigation or whatever that he was deciding to abandon for his family. Oh, okay. That's kind of how I interpreted that scene with, with the call originally. I took it as one, they've moved. They're in a new house that maybe he hasn't been to that house, that anytime he goes there, he runs the risk of people Being tracking there. him. Mm. Yeah, exactly. And then the, they offer ice cream to him, and <laughs> he's just been tracking Hector Salamanca, who has an ice cream, you know, <laughs> he front. He ruined his ice cream front. Yeah. yeah. So I, I didn't I, catch that. That's funny. Yeah, so I think that would uh, definitely remind him of that in that moment. Yeah, a lot of unsettling things there, I guess, for him. <laughs> now, of course, the thing that's not unsettling for him is he expresses something 
something positive, which is rare for him, something that he likes doing. He really liked fixing that door for Jimmy as part of this underhanded, covert, you are the Ansel Adams of covert photography, as, <laughs> as Jimmy says. I like that line. So that was kind of neat, a little insight into what makes Mike tick. He obviously liked protecting his family and being with them, but he's also got this, hey, am I putting them in danger? Unsettling feeling, but he really likes working with his hands. And we see him reading a magazine shortly after, reading a handyman magazine. I think Mike has a strong sense of justice. He wants things to be right, but that might also apply in less, you know, high-minded concepts. He wants things to be right, like he wants the table to be built correctly. He wants the car engine to work right. You know, he wants physical things to be correct also. Yeah, he's a he's someone who seems to appreciate a job done right. Like yeah. people doing their job, people doing it properly, people taking the time, efficiency, and having a little pride in the finished product. And he says it's nice to build something for once, or fix something for once. And of course, he's getting involved in violence and covert operations. It's not something it's not good for the soul. Now, Jimmy has enlisted Mike in exchange for the work Jimmy did for Mike. Mike is now doing work for Jimmy. And of course, he says they're even Steven now. But of course, we know that's not true. They're <laughs> going to be working together again at some point. There are a lot of possibilities here for what Mike found in the address book that was given to Jimmy. One possible idea is information on his ex-wife. Another possibility is it's information on the DA. I don't think that Jimmy has met this DA or knows really who she is. So maybe if he got some information about her, where she lives, where she went to school, something, maybe they could work with her in some way if they know something about her. That's possible. Though I think that's probably not the case because the DA, I'm guessing this DA is now out of the picture. Like they did the apology. They've moved on to something else. I like the idea, but after the fact, we'll have to see. So another possibility is, especially given the way the rest of the episode went, there seemed to be a lot of contention over this tape. And in existence of another one, maybe there's some information about a safety deposit box, what bank that tape is being stored in. I, I don't know if that's possible or what they could do with it, but something I started thinking about. I definitely think that that's a pretty solid theory, that it's something related to where the tape is stored, that they find the address, and that then they later confirm it is in a safety deposit box or something like that. I think my favorite, though, is the idea that it's his ex-wife, that they're going to bring her to court somehow to show that Chuck is crazy yeah. and that it'll throw Chuck off his game. He might have some sort of episode seeing her. Who knows what could happen? I think that the tape is interesting because they know, like you say, they know the tape is out there. They know they didn't let Jimmy destroy the only <laughs> evidence. But I don't know what purpose it serves for them to know where the tape is if their plan is to trick them into playing it. It doesn't matter to them where the tape is as long as it exists and it gets played. What do they benefit by knowing its location? Well, we should stop and go over what we think Jimmy and Kim's general plan is. I, for instance, think that they're trying to cast doubt on Chuck's state of mind. That's why they have Mike going in there taking photos that are showing that he is living in an unsafe way. Jimmy was right to barge in to try it, that he was worried about him. He literally was worried about him. That's why when they see the gas lamp, lantern on top of the newspapers, they say, gas lantern tells the whole story, which paints a picture of someone who is being unsafe. I think this theory is very, very strong. I think that setting up Chuck to look crazy is both a good strategy, a workable strategy, and the evidence seems to point towards that being the strategy they're using. I'm sure there's a few details and parts of the plan we haven't figured out yet, but I do feel strongly that this is a very good theory. We get yet another scene of Kim just working away, just toiling hard, calling number after number after number. In this case, she's doing it to do something pretty tricky, which is find whatever repair company Chuck hired and cancel it hmm. so that Mike can pretend to be a handyman. She's also doing something else kind of tricky, which is 
trying to phrase things just right in that confession letter. She wants him to see if you can't get away with using damaged and things like that. I don't know about you guys, but I kind of thought it seemed like Kim was enjoying herself there, making these calls. Oh, I agree. I think in general, we've even seen her going along with Jimmy and the scam thing. She likes to be clever. She likes to be tricky. I can imagine lawyers maybe like that too. They like to like find the angle to coming at it from a new way to... They like being clever, yeah. yeah. I, I think that, uh, yeah, Kim's breaking a little bad herself here. <laughs> I wonder, they had this whole argument over how to phrase that. Chuck wants it to say, you know, destroyed a cassette tape. It eventually gets changed to destroyed item of personal property. And I wonder, I think that was overall a win for Kim and them. And I wonder how much she was engineering that so that that's what they came up with. She tried to push damage so that they would say destroyed so that they don't have cassette tape, I was wondering. That's exactly what I thought, is that at least I think what she wants them to think is she doesn't want this tape mentioned because it could lead to her involvement Mesa Verde and everything else so just damage property we don't have to get into what the property is and so they come with this compromise to say destroyed but still not name the tape but I think in the end they do know the tape is out there and expect this to be part of everything I do think she genuinely hoped they could use the term damage instead of destroyed because in the end legally that will be worse for Jimmy or you know not as worse for it to be damaged not destroyed but I do think it's key they even include the price when they change the, the amount of the damage that Jimmy's writing a check for, they have to add the dollar ninety-eight cents or whatever. I, I do think this tape is going to be key to how everything plays out. So in this meeting with both lawyer parties and Kira Hay, the DA here, she wants an oral apology. And she specifically refers to the lack of remorse in the document, which is funny because the first thing we see in this episode is Jimmy doing a remorse check on this exact letter. So I think that speaks to part of their underhanded dealings here in this whole thing. They've got a pretty multifaceted plan here. And I know we've picked up on some of it, but I'm looking forward to seeing the things we missed and being surprised by them. Yeah, I'm sure there's a lot of legalese and loop polls and stuff that we're going to see play out in the future episodes. But I really liked Jimmy's apology itself, which also, you know, weaved itself through some loopholes that Kira wasn't exactly picking up on. But Chuck definitely picked up on how a lot of the things he was saying applied to Chuck. Like, no one should treat his own brother like that. Exactly. No <laughs> one should treat his own brother like that. Yeah. Ever. <laughs> one thing that Chuck brings up here is that the Bar Association is far more lenient regarding proof, which definitely will cut both ways. They think that this is something Kim has no experience with. They say, this is your first time in front of the bar. You may not realize that. Mm -hmm. And of course, after the bingo and thinking back on it, we think she exactly knows that. In fact, she's counting on that. And that leads us to the photos that Jimmy had Mike take, which normally would not be admissible evidence. Because like, where do these photos come from? You took these photos illegally, but eh, the standard for evidence is lower so that works exactly into their hands. And in terms of Jimmy providing proof about other people testifying to Chuck maybe not being of sound mind, they might be willing to accept more of that as well, I think. Very true. Visual elements. As usual, the flashback is done with muted colors. It's different grading. The, the visuals are very clearly different. And how would you describe specifically what's being done there? Color grading to give it more of a yellow and sepia tone, which not only makes sense for Mexico, it makes sense for the color motifs of the show, and it makes sense for an old flashback, but certainly there's plenty of flashbacks where they might have a cool tone, a blue tone to the flashback, so it means something. Right on. One of the cuts that I liked was after we've met this little Sabrosito bobblehead, (laughs) it cuts to the wall with Sabrosito 
Chicharito and the name, the winking Greek, and them being raided. <laughs> now there's, of course, the scene with Hector going to Los Palos Hermanos. It's very visual. There's not a lot of dialogue. There's a lot of uncomfortable customers. They're kind of looking around like, what's going on? And these guys are clearly gangsters. Like, everyone <laughs> gets that vibe, like, right away. The mother's, like, tells her son, we gotta get out of here, you know? And people know what's going on, but they, there's nothing they can do about it either. So after the whole tense moment passes, which they did a good job of making him be very tense, Gus is cleaning up the mess. Everyone's gone. He's by himself. He's going through as he seems to be methodically cleaning up everything. And he takes his shot at the trash can. And a smile comes across his face. And at first, I, I interpreted that of him like, haha, it worked. Mike disrupting those trucks got back at Hector. But then I realized, oh, it's even bigger than that. He's going to corner Hector's own market. He's, Hector's just going to give it to him. It's a, a big coming together of planning for uh, Gus there. It was basically his version of bingo. It was a silent bingo. Like, yeah, and, and his shot was perfect. It was a bingo shot right there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was really cool. I wonder how many times I had to film that for him to get the shot. Yeah, the yeah, yeah. Dear God, this piece is a horrible shot. It's just like, they do it like 30 times. <laughs> it kind of reminded me too of Chuck's little minor triumphant toss as he walks out of the room. Uh, just as he's fooled Ernesto. Yes. Yeah. There's a couple of just minor shots that I just really appreciated, which one was the chopping of the tomatoes that like macro shot which for like a split second i thought it was a finger being cut blood or something trippy it's a very nice looking tomato (laughs) and then right after that you get the employee squeegeeing the window and you can't see through it and then they pull it down and you see gus walking up yeah when gus walks in the room he looks around he can tell that all his employees their morale is down and then he calls him for his speech we get that great moment with the the demeanors gradually improving as his speech gets more rah-rah i didn't think about it until you just mentioned it but it is cinematic a good representation there's this haze that the employees are behind <laughs> and it gets cleared away by Gus oh, he shows up cool. and explains everything to them <laughs> yeah yeah, explains it to them. <laughs> they know it all. It's like, actually, I'm a drug kingpin. Let me level with you. <laughs> now I have to kill you all. <laughs> but at least you know the truth. It's the type of thing where he maybe could tell the truth and everyone, ha ha ha, that's yeah. so funny, Gus. And no one would believe it. All right, fine, I told him. <laughs> There's one visual thing that I'm a little perplexed by. There's so much attention to detail and I feel like every little thing in the background and the foreground all has some meaning to it that I could couldn't help but notice that the blinds in the background of the room where the lawyers had the meeting, they were all kind of crooked and broke, and I don't know what meaning there is to that. Maybe it's just a random coincidence. I think it makes perfect sense to me, that sort of location that they're in, this courthouse, it's not something that is well cared for. The blinds would get messed up. People would be in there that are having tense moments, they would fiddle with the blinds, they would break the blinds, things would happen to it in that particular location. And I think they wanted it to be like that on purpose. Hmm. Maybe it's just uh, an attempt at some sort of realism. Maybe there's some symbolism that we just can't put together. It is off kilter on both sides for Jimmy and Kim and for Chuck and Howard. And you could say they're both off kilter at the moment. They're both blind. (laughs) Well, if any of you (laughs) listeners have some ideas to what symbolism that might have or how realistic you think it is or whatever, let us know. Fandomedia.reviews. Another shot that I really appreciated because it worked really well for what they were trying to depict on the screen was that above shot of Jimmy and Mike eating because you're seeing Jimmy look at these photos. So seeing them from above was perfect so we could actually see both of them and see the photos that they're looking at. And that tasty breakfast. (laughs) (laughs) And now it's time to get into one of my favorite sections, maybe my favorite just definitively sections of the podcast episodes, which is on the color theory of the show. Now I think this is interesting because I know some of you may maybe 
maybe didn't hear our first episode or maybe aren't aware of this entirely, but the color, this isn't a theory. This is something the creators of the show have come out and just said, yeah, this is what we do. We do these colors, it's very intentional. They absolutely have communicated meaning. So this isn't just us trying to pick these colors out and say, hey, maybe they're meaning this. They are absolutely 100% doing this and we're trying to interpret it as best as we can. And we're really keyed into it because it's fun and it just keeps paying off because it's just every time there's these really dramatic or obvious uses of color that are consistent with these themes. Sometimes they're more subtle uses of color, not always dramatic and obvious. You're right. And I also appreciate that not only can it like give you a clue as to what's going on, but also shows the, I don't know how to say this, artistic integrity that they have, that they're consistent with it. And it reminds me of the care and design they put into everything. Another above shot, like Shay pointed out when they were eating, was Kim when she was working through all the phone calls. The first thing I notice is that a rare moment here that Kim is not surrounded in blue, this above shot shows the floor is orange she's surrounded in mm. orange and as the scene continues she keeps being surrounded in warm colors there are these orange and red binders and books on her desk she's going through the yellow pages <laughs> she is using a yellow highlighter the buttons on a phone are red and orange she's wearing black and white not wearing blue like she normally is. There was just, I felt clue after clue that this is a little shift in Kim's normal MO. Meanwhile, back in that flashback, we see all sorts of variations of red. Bolsa is in just a bright red shirt. Eladio's in these dark, dark red swim shorts. And Hector is in like a light pinkish red shirt, but he's got a bright red stripe on his hat. And there's just red flowers everywhere and pretty much no blue with the exception of the pool and Jimenez is wearing blue jeans but they're, that's about it. I mean it's yeah. just yellow and red everywhere. Notably Jimenez is not in red and he's right. the person who was killed who didn't deserve it really. I mean he was a drug trafficker but as it goes he was better than them. You get the sense he was kind of bullied into being a drug trafficker in the first place. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's also worth noting again that the way they use these colors generally what they've told us the, I think the most active specific thing they've told us is that red and warm colors tend to be on the side of criminality and you can kind of construct drew from that and watching it that blue is on the side of legality. They haven't gone quite into the details. In fact, they said they kind of leave it to the viewers to kind of piece it all together and figure it out. But one thing that I believe is that the colors aren't strictly red is bad, blue is good. Not only red could be criminal versus legal, you could be one and the other or not necessarily, but also that it's a relative thing. So that this driver, even though he's with these bad guys, he's relatively not a bad guy compared to them. <laughs> yeah, or much, much less bad. Yeah. <laughs> At Los Players Hermanos, we have a lot of customers in blue. And we have Hector himself in this scene. is a dark red shirt and bright red shoes. Nacho's wearing red. Arturo's in black, but he has a red hair tie. Yeah, I, yeah. I definitely. I was scouring his clothes during that. And I was like, he's just in black. How interesting. And then you just see a glance of his hair tie and it's bright red. <laughs> yeah, that is not an accident. We also took note of Gus's car in the scene where he meets with Mike uh, at night. His car looks very blue. In the daytime, it looked kind of black, but it looked definitively blue to me. And Gus and Mike were lit in this kind of red, yellow light during these scenes, which I thought was significant. The confession meeting is one of the first times that I was just super keyed into the colors right away. You guys are like always on top of it. But as soon as the DA walked in, I was like, holy crap, that shirt is blue. That is a super <laughs> yeah. blue shirt. And then she's cleaning her glasses with that of blue frames with a blue oil cloth. And then she pulls out her blue folders and it's just blue, 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 blue everywhere. Yeah. But 
everyone else in the room is in some variation of blue as well. Because a lot of them are somewhat in the right, I think, and trying to work with the legal system in some way, stuff like that. They're it's themes of the law. Yeah. Something yeah. Like that. yeah. At this moment, everyone is dealing with legality. Whether yeah. they're good or bad or even criminal or not, they would be, I think, wearing blue in this scenario. In the same way that if Gus's car has a shade of blue to it, I think it's because he's covering his criminal front with this mm-hmm. blue. Does that make sense? And of course, the final shot of Kim and Jimmy walking out is very blue. And it's like, it says it to me, it's like the law's on their side. They work in the law and it's working for them. Yeah, they're going to get him in the legal game. Audio Elements. My favorite scene of the episode was this drilling scene, which was a very visual scene, but it was also obviously a very audio-centric. <laughs> very much so. <laughs> Normally, such a sound playing over and over would be annoying, but it was hilarious. <laughs> I was still annoyed. <laughs> <laughs> Kind of annoying hilarious at the same time. <laughs> Especially the moment where Mike is standing around the corner and he hears Chuck starting to walk towards him. And he's like, Rrr, you know, and then Chuck just <laughs> turns around. So funny. This is one of those rare, like, really funny comedic moments. It's interesting, by the way, this is the second time Mike has used a loud triggered device as a distraction. Oh, yeah, the rifle. <laughs> he fired the rifle in the air to distract the truck drivers. Now he's firing his drill gun to distract Chuck. Quick on the trigger, that Mike. <laughs> an expert. I liked the sound and flash of the camera, but Mike could have kept the drill going. There was one time where you just hear the camera go. Chuck could have heard a camera. Not only could he have also seen the flash if he hadn't gotten him upstairs to hide away. It was a tricky heist that they were doing to get yeah. these photos yeah. out of there. I think that's why Mike stood around the corner. He wanted to hear him going upstairs. And so that way he's like, I don't think he can hear the camera click when he's that far up there. And he might not know it's a camera click either. Okay. After all, Chuck doesn't spend a lot of time around electronic devices anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I think my other favorite audio element moment was, I thought it was really, really well done, is when Gus is inside talking to the firefighters and it just cuts to silence and the sound of like vibration of his phone, he comes out and answers the phone. But to me, that was like deeply symbolic of just, you know, the BS that Gus is spinning to them. It's, what he's saying doesn't matter. We yeah, don't need yeah. to hear the rest of this conversation. Yeah. The precise words are meaningless. We know basically the gist of it. Yeah, that's you're totally right. There's a key moment in the scene where Hector and Arturo and Nacho invade Los Poyos Hermanos where Hector lights his cigar. And as soon as he's confronted about that, the music starts. And it's very, it's it's quiet music and it builds a little bit, but it's tension music. And it's sort of showing that this is escalating and that Hector is really pushing the envelope here. And he's like, yeah. I'm going to wait for Gus. And the reason I'm going to wait for Gus is you're going to tell him I'm here because <laughs> I'm going to be such an ass that it's going to force you into calling him and getting him here as soon as possible. And then I'm going to scrape poop onto your desk with, my, with your pen. <laughs> hey, it might have just been gum. <laughs> no, he said mierda. Oh, okay. <laughs> you, you would say that if you had gum on your shoe. No, I think it is. I think it is. <laughs> There's a lot of Spanish speaking in this episode, both in the scene with... Hector at Hello's Polaris Hermanos and in the opening scene with Don Eladia where they're just only speaking Spanish. I really liked this one line that Hector said, just, es okay. But he <laughs> says it in that deep gravelly voice and it just sounded just like Cookie Monster to me personally. <laughs> it's okay. These huge piles of cash are okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's a, a moment that I appreciated. It reminded me of another thing when the, the lawyers are coming in to the meeting. Jimmy's in there. 
Howard comes in and they greet each other. Jimmy, Howard. Howard. Yep, right. <laughs> and, and as each of them comes in there, they greet each other, except Jimmy won't greet Chuck. Jimmy doesn't, doesn't greet Chuck. Yeah. yeah, he doesn't even acknowledge him. But that scene reminded me of a scene from uh, an 80s comedy, Spies Like Us, with Chevy Chase and Dan Aykroyd, where they're posing as doctors and they're meeting other doctors. And as they all introduce each other, doctor, doctor. Doctor, doctor, doctor. It was a hilarious <laughs> moment. Every, anytime name introductions are happening like that, I always think of that movie. Right there, they could have just been like, lawyer? Lawyer. lawyer. <laughs> I wonder if Chuck would have been looked at Jimmy and not said lawyer. Like, <laughs> not a lawyer. <laughs> Final thoughts. So my favorite moment I already mentioned, it's Mike's drilling, which was both an awesome visual and audio element. What was yours, Sean? Oh, it was definitely the final moment when Kim says, bingo. The instant she said that, I just started reevaluating everything I had just seen. I, I It shed a whole new light on the whole episode when she said that. The whole time I felt like this defeat, you know, that, oh, Jimmy and the plans and Kim's going to get in trouble. And all of a sudden she says, bingo. I'm like, wait a minute. They're up to something. They, they knew what was happening all along. I, I, rewatching the episode, I thought about everything completely differently. I loved how one line, one instant, the last it's moment. One could, word. Right. Could just change everything. I'll say for me, the bingo moment for that plot line was Kim canceling the repair appointment. That was the moment that I was like, oh, they have a plan going on here. And so when that happened, it confirmed that things were still going according to plan. But I didn't feel that sense of defeat when they were in the meeting, in the confession meeting I, I had the sense that things were going according to their plan chuck was trying to quibble over how this was being phrased there were bigger things at hand yeah they were it was a distraction yeah maybe i should have picked up on that I, I it did seem clear to me they had some kind of plan going on but whatever it was i thought was just not gonna live up to this threat of <laughs> the other tape being out there and oh man i just was so worried about how things are gonna play out for kim and she's like bingo I'm like wait a minute <laughs> <laughs> well my favorite apart from the drill which is also up there for me i'm gonna pick a different ones so we have something else out there i really just generally enjoy all the gangster stuff i really like those kind of stories i, re I like reading about non-fiction versions of like the mafia and different criminal organizations and how they operate I, for some reason i'm drawn to that so i really like the scenes with the high level gangsters doing their stuff and just generically like that i always have fun with that so with that in mind signing off i'm Fan Audio. I'm Fan Bolsa. And I'm Michael Fando. And hopefully I'm in more of the season. <laughs> <laughs>